back and better than ever at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. They are the F-Bomb company. Fat is smart fuel. They have made some incredible products for the ketogenic community, and they make keto easier. They have products that include coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, house blend, MCT oil, olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia nut butter with sea salt, macadamia nut butter without salt, coconut butter, macadamia nut butter blend. They also have salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. These are all available to you now at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. And if you head on over there now and you use the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb, they'll give you 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesFBomb.com. Imagine if you had a personal trainer help you choose all your favorite low-carb keto foods such as delectable eggs, savory meat, tender crisp veggies, and select nuts and cheeses. Now imagine having that personal trainer deliver all your meals perfectly portioned, pre-cooked, and packaged so they're all ready to eat in three minutes or less. You might think that a service like this is only for celebrities who can afford to eat this way, but you'd be wrong. Personal Trainer Food delivers low-carb keto foods for less than $15 a day with free shipping. Here's the deal. You fully customize your menu to get meals you're going to love. Jimmy's tried their juicy Angus burgers, frittatas, smoky ribs, and Jimmy says they're absolutely delicious. And the vegetables are bursting with flavor and nutrients. But you don't have to take Jimmy's word for it. You should see the thousands of four- and five-star reviews on Amazon and Groupon. Personal Trainer Food is the easy, convenient, and delicious way to live your low-carb lifestyle. Your meals are delivered in bistro steamer bags, so all you do is pop them in the microwave for three minutes. Heat, eat, and done. No shopping, prep, cooking, or cleaning, saving you time and money. If you're looking for weight loss results, Personal Trainer Food has a long track record record of success and a staff of trainers and weight loss coaches who know their way around the low-carb keto life, there to answer all of your questions at no additional cost. Most trainers charge 50 to hundreds of dollars for just one hour, but with Personal Trainer Food, you get trainer-selected meals delivered to you for $15 a day or less. No shady contracts or hidden charges, just great food delivered to you with free FedEx shipping. Order today and you can have your meals by tomorrow. And with this killer deal just for listeners of the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show, you're going to want to get online at Jimmy keto.com and use the discount code LLVLC at checkout to save $150 on any 28-day meal plan. Coming up in episode 1250, McKay Jenkins. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcasting Jimmy Moore hey hey guys we're back here on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore and today I'm very privileged to welcome to the podcast a gentleman by the name of McKay Jenkins he's been writing about people and the natural world for three decades and not only is he the author of Food Fight but he's also the author of Contamination which chronicles his investigation into the myriad of synthetic chemicals that we encounter in our daily lives and the growing body of evidence about the harm that these chemicals are causing to our bodies as well as the environment he's here today because he has a brand new book I want you to know about, and it is called 
food fight, as we just mentioned, GMOs and the future of the American diet. He's been researching this for a really long time. McKay, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, let's back up a little bit and learn who you are. Who are you, man? <laughs> well, uh, I have a couple of different hats that I wear. I'm a, a, a environmental journalist, but I also am a professor of environmental studies at the University of Delaware. Okay. Um, I live in Baltimore, and uh, I've been writing, like you mentioned earlier, writing about environmental stuff, especially for a long time. More recently, I've gotten into uh, writing quite a bit about health because, yeah. of course, environmental problems and health problems are, are pretty stitched together. Yep. So uh, I'm talking to you from Baltimore, where it's a rainy, warm day here at the end of March. <laughs> well, we're really glad that you're here because I haven't really focused on the GMO question uh, as a as the sole topic of a podcast before. So let's do that today. Uh, and people have heard about genetically modified organisms for many years now. GMO has kind of gotten thrown out there, like like gluten free and and even low carb to a lesser extent. It's just become uh, become sort of the vernacular out there, but there's a lot worse things to this GMO uh, issue than people even know, right? Yeah. In fact, I think that's a great way to think about it. GMO for a lot of people has become shorthand for something, but they don't really know what it's shorthand for. They sort of have a vague idea that it, it implies some laboratory experiments with their food. And so they sort of intuitively don't like that. They, it, GMO seems like something that is somehow not natural. Right. And uh, I think that's that's a perfectly reasonable uh, stereotype, although it really, as you mentioned, doesn't really get into it. So the way I wrote this book was to take GMOs as a way into the entire, what I call like the industrial food system itself. Like this this question about how we eat uh, in this late stage of American history uh, really has gotten very, very strange, as you know very well from your mm-hmm. show. An awful lot of stuff that is demonstrably unhealthy to eat. And then, of course, there are environmental consequences to all the things that we're talking about. So GMOs is really just a part of this picture. And if you want to think about it in the simplest way, uh, genetically modifying a plant, which is what we're talking about, is seen by most scientists and by many farmers as simply a tool. It's not like a term like MSG, where it's like talking about something that you add to food. GMO is actually a way of taking a plant or a seed and changing it so that it can do different things in a farmer's field. It's a means to an end. It's a means to an end. And then so that's a really good way to think about it, because to my mind and and what really the book is about is the what is the end? I mean, the end in many of these cases with GMOs is more industrial food. So using GMOs to get more of what I think is a really bad way to eat is not necessarily a beneficial (laughs) thing. So if I could if you don't mind, I'll just tell you tell people just a couple of ways to think about. So if you think of GMOs as a tool, uh, a tool that where you manipulate the genetics of a plant, in the United States, that tool is mostly used to create uh, one of two primary uh, industrial scale crops. One is corn and one is soybeans. And now corn and soybeans, as you I'm sure know, are used to make all kinds of food, but it's not necessarily, in everything. <laughs> yeah, but not necessarily the food we want to be eating. That's so it's right. a lot of processed food, a lot of fast food. It's also fed. These two grains are fed uh, to some of the nine billion animals that Americans eat, whether you're talking about cows or pigs or chickens. So it's a feed crop if you want to think about it that way, for the fast food industry, the processed food industry, uh, not the kind of foods that I'm sure you're recommending that that people eat. So 
sometimes, you know, your listeners may hear the term GMO and hear somebody say, we need GMOs to feed the world, which is often the way it gets marketed. Right. And that can mean, I think, what is often meant by that is one of two things. Either it's, it's a great way to make very high calorie foods, which is what we do here in the United States. What they don't say is these foods are also very low nutrition, but right. they're very high calorie foods. Or... If the person talking to you seems to be kind of a, a do-gooder, they will say, uh, we need these GMOs, this genetic engineering, to feed starving people in the developing world. And what they mean by that is in part true. Like there are scientists, and I write about them in the book, that do some incredibly cool things with plants where they genetically modify them to, for example, stand up under drought conditions or, on the other hand, stand up under flood conditions or provide different kinds of nutrition. So if you are a, you know, a, a poor person in Africa, you can develop a, a cassava, which is a root crop that a lot of Africans eat, but it has no uh, beta carotene in it. And so a lot of kids in Africa uh, can get um, become blind, become blind as children because they're not getting enough vitamin A in their diet. So there are scientists who are trying to create a cassava that has beta carotene. So when a child eats it, they will not only get calories, but they will also get the vitamins they need not to go blind. That's a very valuable, I mean, a really cool uh, use of this technology. But the primary thing that in the United States that happens is we're using this technology only to make industrial farming more efficient, which in this case often means using a lot of petrochemical herbicides and pesticides that these crops are designed to stand up to. So you can have a huge field of soybeans, for example, and spray it like crazy with all kinds of chemicals, and it'll kill everything except for the soybean, which is great for the farmer, but not necessarily great for your health or for uh, the water running off that farm. So, McKay, uh, is it because it generates a higher yield that farmers are so willing, well, industrialized farmers anyway, are so willing to do this? Uh, or w what is the grand purpose of GMO? Well, that's a great question. And you will, you know, depending on who you ask, you'll get different arguments about this. One argument is that the combination of using GMO seeds plus the herbicides that kill the weeds or the insecticides that kill the insects, the combination of those two things increases yield, makes the whole thing more efficient. Because if you're killing the weeds with chemicals, of course, you don't have to pull them by hand or you don't have to till it up. Right. So you can have... Um, the combination of the genetically altered seed plus the chemicals makes a very efficient machine. Now, there are people, especially from the organic side of the argument, that will say things like, uh, these industrial scale crops are only yielding higher in really ideal situations. Like if you have, you know, take a 20 or 30 year window and some years are good and some years are bad, they're actually organic, that is to say non-chemically saturated uh farming overall averages out about the same with yields. Now, you'll get very heated arguments on both sides of that. Right. And I'm just simply reporting on, on what I, I understood from my research. But yes, the bottom line is these, these chemicals and these seeds are made to make the industrial food system more efficient, but only really with these couple of grains. It's not like this this is being used to make really, really nutritious tomatoes or something. This is really meant to be used only on soybeans and corn for all intents and purposes. Is there any organization that is kind of an oversight committee on the use of GMOs and who can do it, who can't do it, or is it, a, is it the wild, wild west? 
Oh no! I mean, you do have to go through a whole lot of permitting from the from the U.S. You know, the, the federal regulators, the USDA, the EPA. Depending on whether you're talking about introducing a new plant or whether you're talking about introducing new chemicals, they they do have to go through regulatory review. Now, the critics, of course, say that um, what the government will do is turn to the companies and say, "Look, you guys do the testing and just tell us what your results are, and we'll just oh, basically rubber stamp it." Which is a recipe for problems, as you can imagine. From Chickens all running the hen house basically yeah that's that's the criticism yeah wow well it, it's it's a sad situation that i don't think enough attention is being brought to so thank you for all of your great work uh, shining a light on the gmo issue uh, i haven't given your website yet so let's do that now mckayjenkins.com n-c-m-c-k-a-y-j-e-n-k-i-n-s.com he's also on twitter at mckayjenkins as well as facebook mckayjenkins books but uh let's get into the american diet because this is uh intimately uh, connected to that, unfortunately, with all of these GMO crops ending up in what I like to call McKay uh, crappy garbage because it's yeah. everywhere out there. <laughs> so right. um, y- this problem with the American diet is so much bigger, really, than the GMO issue. That's that's just the beginning of it. Tell us what your research showed you. Well, thank you for saying that. I, you're you're absolutely right that that many of the problems, both with the American diet and I have to say, with the destruction of uh, the American soil, like the American soil that is being used by these farmers has really been depleted over time by this same industrial system. But that what you said is is true that these many of these problems, maybe most of these problems actually existed before the introduction of GMOs. So when we're talking about industrial food production, and then of course, the, the diet that results from that, those problems existed before the introduction of GMOs. GMOs, though, has just made this stuff much more kind of locked in. Like if you look at uh, the 1990s, uh, the, the percentage of soybeans that were GMO was only like in the, like say 15%. Now it's in the mid nineties. In other words, almost all soybeans now are GMO. Almost all corn is GMO, wow. which means that this, this, this industrial system is becoming more and more solidified. And the reason I bring that up is because it's become increasingly rare to find farmers that grow non-GMO corn or non-GMO soybeans, which of course means they're all locked into the same chemical you know, the use of, of the herbicides and the pesticides. And beyond that, of course, is they're, they're locked into this system of providing, as you well know, lots and lots of very cheap calories and low nutrition. So really, whether you're talking about this from an environmental point of view or a health point of view, uh, none of it is particularly good. We're not getting nutritious food. We're developing a farming system that is destroying our soil and our water. And by the way, uh, it's one of the biggest contributors to climate change. So uh, a lot of those problems are tied directly to this industrial system that GMO supports. And it even upsets the dogs from time to time, too. <laughs> it, uh, well, they get non-GMO dog food the best they can. Anyway. I'm sure it is non-GMO in McKay's house, for sure. Do you miss pizza because it's not a part of your low-carb lifestyle? Then let me introduce you to Real Good Pizza Company. Go to realgoodpizzaco.com and you'll see they have grain-free, gluten-free pizzas that are frozen, 25 grams of protein, 4 grams of carbohydrates, and lots and lots of healthy fats. They only use real food ingredients, almost no carbs, and it's perfect for any low-carb and ketogenic lifestyle. 
The crust is made from all-natural Parmesan and chicken. The chicken is antibiotic-free and hormone-free. The tomatoes in the sauce and the vegetables in the Supreme are non-GMO, and the cheese is locally sourced and all-natural as well. It's healthy, guilt-free pizza that actually tastes like a pizza. Again, it's called Real Good Pizza. Head on over to realgoodpizzaco.com and be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off your order as well as free shipping. Real Good Pizza. From the makers of Quest Bars comes an exciting new product line for those of us interested in the ketogenic lifestyle. It's called Quest Keto, and these innovative foods will make your pursuit of ketosis that much more convenient and tasty. There are a myriad of sweet and savory snacks, as well as ready-to-eat frozen meals, including ketogenic cinnamon rolls, sandwiches, biscuits, flatbread frittatas, and so much more. I've personally tried all of these new Quest Keto products, and they are the real deal, offering delicious, truly keto-friendly foods that don't negatively impact your blood sugar or blood ketone levels. Check out the full line of new ketogenic meals and more at questketo.com. You can experience all the health benefits of keto on the go, anytime, anywhere, thanks to Quest Keto. Hey fellow Ketonians, in case you haven't heard, my friends Carl and Richard from the Two Keto Dudes podcast, along with a whole bunch of their keto friends, are going to make history by turning the U.S. town of New London, Connecticut, ketogenic for the weekend of July 15th and 16th, 2017. It's called Keto Fest and promises to be not only educational, but a whole lot of fun. My Fasting Talk co-host Megan Ramos and I will be speaking as part of this event along with a whole bunch of other great keto thought leaders. In addition to great talks, they're also going to have an outdoor keto barbecue with a pig picking, live music, walking, running, cycle tours, and cooking and fitness lessons as well. They've got the local restaurants and the mayor on board too. So help us make history by reserving your ticket now at KetoFest.com. That's KetoFest.com. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Alan Savory's TED Talk that he gave and how we can, uh, I guess, uh, revitalize a lot of these these areas that have been uh, depleted, as you were saying. Do you think that can catch on? I think this is really one of the most fundamental questions that Americans are going to have to deal with in the next 50 years or so. If you think about it, one thing I like to tell my students when we're talking about this is that if you take all of human history, the entire time that human beings have been on this planet as a 24-hour clock, how long have we been farming? Not farming with GMOs, but farming at all. And the answer is on a 24-hour clock of human existence, we've been farming for about six minutes. Yeah. So that's about 10,000 years where we've been farming. Now, if you take 10,000 years and make the GMO thing as a part of that, or let's even say uh, industrial farming is only about 50 years old. So we're talking about a tiny fraction Two in all seconds. of human history. <laughs> right. So what kind of farming have we developed and what, what has that done not only to our diets, but also to our communities, the way we think about food, the way we think about our bodies, the way we think about the environment it has really dislocated people 
from their food. So many people in this country can go their entire lives and never meet the farmer that grows their food because their far, their food is coming from, you know, what do they say on average, 1,500 miles away. Mm. So, you know, the, one of the solutions, I, I always, this is oversimplifying, I acknowledge this, but in terms of a, an impulse, my strong impulse to satisfy almost all these problems is to local, local, localize yes. the food economy. So support local farmers, buy food, even if it's a little bit more expensive, buy it from local farmers. What does that do? It keeps it keeps your money in your community as opposed to sending it off to some you know uh, corporate headquarters across the country. It allows your farmer to have enough income that he doesn't have to sell his farm off to another subdivision. Yeah. So now we're growing houses instead of food. It diversifies your diet because you're not you know local farmers are not just growing corn and soybeans they're going to grow asparagus and beets and everything else and that's what you want so you know people joining csas around the country as i do it's a really beneficial thing for your health it's beneficial for the environment but maybe even more importantly it's beneficial for the economy because you keep money at home which is where it belongs well i can tell you in my area mckay i live in south carolina we actually have a really strong farmers market in our area and one thing that the uh, the WIC program has done that's the what used to be called food stamps uh, they actually double the dollars for food stamp recipients to be able to spend money at the local farmers market so you also are helping those underprivileged people that don't usually have access to this good kind of healthy food they now have instant access with double the bang for their buck yeah, I think that's a phenomenal thing. You, you see efforts like that in, in lots of places. You know, where I live in the Northeast or the Mid-Atlantic area, we have so many kind of post-industrial cities where most of the residents cannot find uh, fresh food of any kind, GMO or not. You know, these food deserts are ubiquitous in places like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Wilmington. So there are effort. We've got farmers in these areas and we've got city people that need the food, but they, there's not this kind of connection like there are farmers markets here and there and they're, they're growing in popularity, but yep. really what we need to do is figure out a way to scale this up there. A friend of mine made a really cool documentary uh, that some of your listeners might want to check out called cafeteria man. And it's about a guy who came into the Baltimore school system and try and got like local city kids to go work on urban farms, yes. grow fresh produce and then put it into the school cafeteria system. Love it. So, you know, they are learning skills. They are growing food. They are introducing food from the bottom up, not from some administrator, but from, you know, these are teenagers going up to their fellow teenagers and said, look, I just, I grew, you know, 200 pounds of sorrel and now it's in the, in the salad bar. Go check it out. You're really going to like it. And lo and behold, they do. They like sorrel. They like beets and they're growing them themselves and their nutritional bang for the buck, as you say, is so far superior to eating. What do they usually get? Pizza, 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 pizza every single day. Yeah. So this is a, a fabulous solution. Well, and this goes well beyond food. Those kids are learning where food comes from. They're learning uh, accomplishment of being able to, hey, I grew that, you know, <laughs> that's kind of cool for kids to be able to have that experience. I can tell you one of the best things that I personally did here in the past couple of years is I got chickens in my backyard and I've got a huge front yard, enclosed front yard garden that we now do every year. It just seems to me, if you want to avoid this GMO issue, uh, isn't that a solution if you have the ability 
Oh, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, it, it's not only the, the magic bullet to getting away from GMOs, but it's it's actually the magic bullet to solving all kinds of other things. Like I, I said earlier, I think behind the GMO problem is really this fundamental disconnect between people and one of the most intimate things that they do every day, which is eat. You know, if you are if you're eating habits, you know, consist of opening up something and popping it in a microwave, you have no idea what's in that thing, where it was grown, who grew it, whether they were grown under, you know, humane working conditions, whether the workers were treated well, whether the animals were treated well, whether the soil was treated well, all that stuff goes right out the window. And the only decision you're ever making when you buy some food is whether it was cheap. And that is really a very impoverished way to think about food. No other country, you know, this is actually statistically... Phenomenal. The United States uh, per capita spends less money on food than almost any country in the world. So how did we, you know, this great, whatever we call ourselves, bastion of whatever you want to say, how did we decide that the only thing we cared about with our food was whether it was cheap, not whether it was nutritious, not whether it was uh, tasty, not whether we eat with other people, you know, like what did they say? Something like, a, I forget what it is, some 10 or 20% of American meals are eaten in a car. Wow. Like that's what we've gotten to, and it's all tied into this whole so GMOs, like you say, is a part of this. But really, we're talking about the whole package. Is it savvy marketing that got people so hooked on this? In other words, you know, we we've been depending on industrial food uh, production for well all of my life that <laughs> that I've been around, uh, and it seems like it's just such a part of our culture. Uh, just grab the frozen dinner and nuke it. Yeah, you know something, my favorite part of this research, and this, this forms, I think, uh, this maybe the second chapter in the book, was to answer that question, like, how did, it, how did we get here? And the answer that I came up with was, the way we got to eating the way we do is because of the interstate highway system. So if you think about what happened after World War II... Eisenhower's fault. <laughs> well, yeah, he did great things over in Europe, but one thing they did, this is actually kind of interesting if you think about it, um, after the war, we took a page from the Germans and we built this incredible highway system as primarily, a lot of people don't realize this, but our highway system was originally built as a, as a homeland security measure. It was to be allow, allow American defense to move up and down and around the country to protect ourselves. That was the intent. Now, an unintended consequence of that is once we had all these big, beautiful roads, people could move out of the city. And they could build houses out in the country, which they did. And everybody on the East Coast knows this. That's how suburbia was born. So you had these big highways, you had these big ring roads, these loop roads around the cities. And now millions and millions of people moved out of the city and they moved into the country and we got suburbs. Now, that's all well and good, but we built these houses and these malls and everything else on top of farms. So in from like the late 1930s until now, we've lost 4 million small family farms in this country, 4 million. So that's because we built houses on top of all our farms. So all the food production moved out to the Midwest and it grew up in scale. So now instead of going down to your local supermarket, your local farmer's market, you are now buying stuff that is shipped thousands of miles to get to you. And if if that's the way the country has evolved, then the food that it produces that it has to ship around the country is all going to look very monochrome, all very uniform. It's going to be lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of cheap hamburgers yeah. or lots and lots and lots of bags of chips or bottles of soda or whatever it is because that's the kind of stuff you can make in a central location and ship it all around the country. That's why, you know, when you go to New Orleans or you go to Seattle or you go to San Diego or you go to Portland, Maine, you're eating the same freaking food. 
because there's no like the local food thing has just become embattled because you know you guys eat barbecue in south carolina right that's like one of the last last things that is hung on a regional cuisine that you can't make in new york you know it's like we want to go back to the way we ate when we everybody ate what you produced locally and everyone's got their own fingerprints like think about how much richer the country would be when it's got all this really great colorful food all around the country yeah and and unfortunately people have become very trusting you think about every other aspect of your life how trusting uh, you are, or lack of trusting that you are of every other part of your life, except for what you're putting in your pie hole. <laughs> People yeah. just, uh, they trust that these chemicals that these companies are using, and I'm thinking specifically of like glyphosate and what we know now about what that does in the body to change the lipids and just all sorts of really dastardly things. Uh, and unfortunately, people, do they care? I don't know. You know, it's, I think that's a really good question. And, and you, you say that we trust these people, but I'm not totally sure that's true. In fact, I almost think that this, the, the GMO, the, the three letters GMO has yeah. come to somehow represent a lack of trust. Now, people honestly, like even people who are foodies, if you ask them if they like GMOs, they'll say no. But if you ask them why, they might not actually be able to answer the question. What they, when they say, I don't like GMOs, what I think they're saying is this is kind of the last straw. Like I have lost my faith in this whole system somehow. And GMO is just sort of like a shorthand for this distrust. But they don't know what to do about it, right? They don't know. They, they only see the food in the supermarket when they don't know where it came from. So they have no choice. That's why the farmer's market CSA thing is like this magic alternative to all that. Well, McKay, well, let me clarify what I meant by trusting. The fact that you just go and buy that industrialized food at the store and just trust that everything about it is okay, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. You don't know where that food came from. You don't know its life cycle. You don't know it, that it came 1,500 miles away. That, that's what I meant by trusting. It just seems like a, a lot of people, and that is changing. Thankfully, this show hopefully is helping to influence that, but people are, are hopefully going more local. But I think in general, most of the population is still just incredibly trusting that whatever is on that package and it's got some fancy schmancy label that says non-GMO and says gluten-free and says whatever, people just trust those things without uh, verifying that they are actually true. Well, I mean, I think you're right. And actually, this brings up a whole nother can of worms, which we can get into or not. But, you know, what is trust built on? Trust is built on either trust of the company that makes it or trust on the government that oversees it. And I, I would like to neither. Case, yeah, it <laughs> makes the case that you should trust neither. And part of the reason is that those two things really aren't even necessarily two things anymore, because yeah. when you have. This is very well known, but you have this incredible revolving door at yes. the oversight regulatory agency. So, you know, you mentioned glyphosate, which those of you who are not hip to the, the scientific term, that's is Roundup. This is yes. the, the um, Monsanto term is Roundup, which, by the way, your listeners should not only not get food with it, but you shouldn't be using it on your own gardens right. because stuff is still getting into your water. It's been known for some years now as a probable human carcinogen. And now all these court documents are starting to come out where they're, you know, this is going to be kind of like the, uh, uh, there's some, you know, some parallels with the tobacco industry. Yes. Where the scientists knew that it was harmful and then didn't reveal it and all this. This is all going to come out. And, and 
um, you know, I think that people are going to start losing more and more faith as they see the kind of collusion that happens between these giant, very politically powerful corporations and the government that's supposed to be keeping our interests in mind, not the corporation's interests in mind. So this uh, this is a really uh, an important point, I think. And thank goodness for people like Stephanie Seneff kind of sounding the alarm bells on the glyphosate uh, issue. So definitely go look her up. She's been on this show a couple of times before talking about that. I think like four or five years ago, she talked about it for the very first time. And I, I had never heard of it. So uh, definitely it's getting out there. And with knowledge, there's power. So uh, be an empowered consumer out there. Well, and I think that's a really good point. And, and also, I'd like to say on behalf of her and, and others, support your local scientists and support your local journalists. Because, yes. you know, these scientists, whether you're talking about food or you're talking about climate change, they come out with your basic scientific study and then they just get attacked in a very orchestrated way by these. You know, when they come out with science that challenges some of the findings by these companies, the companies attack them, not because the science is wrong, but because it endangers their profits. And that is, that is a really, really important thing to remember, that the free flow of scientific information through scientists and through journalism is the only way that we have of finding out what's actually going on. Otherwise, you're just basically buying PR from the companies. <laughs> it's definitely a thankless job. And, and people think, okay, there's plenty of money out there you know, to do the study and to really look in these things. No, <laughs> there, there's there's no gumption out there from uh, from the financiers. Uh, the National Institutes of Health, you would think, would jump all over it. But unfortunately, they're also guided, unfortunately, by some of that revolving door stuff we were talking about. Right. Well, the, the agencies are controlled by these companies. And then the, the what you, there used to be, you know, a river of federal research money going into science, but now that's dried up. So where are researchers getting their money? They're getting their money from the corporation. So they'll say something like, I'll give you a grant to go look into uh, more GMO research. And so, of course, that's what some of our brightest scientists are doing. They're following the money because they've got to support their laboratories. And the money's not coming from public sources. It's coming from private sources. I wonder if we could crowdsource source uh, this kind of research. In other words, uh, uh, gmocrowdsource.com where people could donate and then this pool of money would then be uh, independent from the government, independent from any uh, people that would financially gain. Um, and it would just be pure research. I, I know a lot of people that write me all the time, you know, regarding low carb and ketogenic diet research. I wonder if there would be gumption for people to be able to donate to GMO research in that way. Well, I think it's a brilliant idea. I mean, the, the truth is there is big, uh, you know, uh, NGO charitable foundation money that is available for food research, like the Gates Foundation, for yeah. example. But they are, uh, you know, I mean, look, they've got a lot of money and there's, they've got a lot of, of enthusiastic fans. And some of the, the work they support is, is probably fantastic. But they are also pumping money into genetic modified foods. They, yeah. they are they are really hook, line, and sinker in with food technology. They're not really addressing the things that we're talking about, which is food culture and food politics and all that. Because uh, you know they they are always following the newest, coolest you know technological innovation. And some of the stuff we're talking about is not about the technology. It's right. about redeveloping an American food aesthetic, food culture, all that sort of thing. Yeah, we could get deep with that topic because I think they're financing the Beyond Meat Company, the vegan meat 
products that are out there. So it's right. Lord knows what's in all that stuff. <laughs> right. Right. It's all sci-fi. You know, whatever happened is buying real food from real farmers and eating it with your real family. You know, here's here. <laughs> that sounds so romantic and sentimental, but that's only because we've fallen off the table. You know, it sounds so well duh, but unfortunately we don't live in that kind of a society anymore. McKay. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> His name is McKay Jenkins. Definitely check him out. McKayJenkins.com. And if you haven't picked up a copy of his book. It is called Food Fight, and you definitely want to learn more about this subject and dig deeply into it. We, we just barely scratched the surface today, but it was a great conversation, McKay. Thanks so much for being here today on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Coming up next time on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have a DO named Dr. Jack Wolfson talking about his philosophy as a paleo cardiologist. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light.